Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome everybody to episode 16 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hello, good. I um, You definitely didn't stick to No Risk Wednesday today by going somewhere four hours away on the work day, but we're both here, so I'm glad. <laughs> did tell you to hydrate and eat this morning. <laughs> you did. Thank you for the... I, I did happen to get sushi for lunch. so oh, that, so I, risky. I know, but it was all I could... I had like a few minutes before a train. And I was thinking of what you said and I'm like, it's either that or not eat. <laughs> so I risked it and I'm fine. You're here. So I'm here. Another two hours and then I don't care what you do. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. We've got some Patreon shout outs today, Chloe. Yes. Welcome and thank you to Andrew Eastwood, Kalita DeBrow and Jenny Mills. Thanks very much for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. Today we're talking about a case that's often linked with the disappearance of the Beaumont children, which we covered last week. This case is often mentioned in passing or as a side note to that case, but the families of these two girls were equally as affected by what happened, and we wanted to dedicate a standalone episode to this case. And we're in South Australia again today, Chloe, in Adelaide. In modern times, Adelaide's a pretty cool place, you know, and it has a bit of a Mediterranean climate, some famous wine regions, trendier spots have popped up, and there's certainly less hustle and bustle compared with some of the more crowded eastern cities in Australia. There's a lot to like about the place, but in recent years, Adelaide's crime rates have steadily declined too. In 2013, it was named the safest city in Australia, and it's often affectionately nicknamed Radelaide nowadays. But back in the late 60s through to the 90s, Adelaide had a fairly dark time. It was the backdrop for many of our country's worst killings, infamous disappearances and abductions. Back in the 70s, the city of churches earned another, less appealing nickname, the Cruel City. And in today's case, we'll get a glimpse of how the cruelness manifested and affected the lives of so many people.
August 25th, 1973, Adelaide Oval, South Australia. Les and Kath Ratcliffe hurriedly ascended the stairs and entered the secretarial office of the South Australian Cricket Association after a brief hold-up in the members' area when an attendant wouldn't let them through. Kath entered the office and was greeted by a Mr Munn. "'What can I do for you?' Munn asked. Two girls are missing. I need you to make an announcement,' Kath responded. Munn furrowed his brow, seemingly in deep thought. Then he shook his head. We can't disturb the game. Besides, the noise of the crowd would make any announcement useless. Munn told Kath the kids would come back, so she should return to her seat. If they didn't arrive, she should seek the assistance of the two police officers at the bottom of the grandstand. Kath was unhappy with the response, but went back to her husband Les, who was waiting outside the office. They returned to the Sir Edwin Smith stand, back to their seats in Rowell, where their son David had been waiting. The 12,000-person crowd roared and the final quarter of the Roosters and Redlegs game played out. Les and Kath returned to the office at the sound of the full-time siren and demanded an announcement, their over-wide searches in the meantime proving fruitless. The announcement was finally made, but it was too late. Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon had vanished. Joanne Ratcliffe was born in 1962. She lived in Campbelltown, about six kilometres from the Adelaide CBD, with her parents Les and Kath and her brother David, who was two years older than her at 13. Joanne had a huge, genuine smile, beautiful blue eyes and dark brown hair, which she often wore in pigtails. She was an intelligent young girl and she had a deep affection for animals, cats and dogs in particular. She was also very caring and motherly, And on this day, the 25th of August, 1973, these motherly tendencies would surface. During her attendance at the local Aussie Rules football game with her family, she befriended a younger four-year-old girl who attended the game that day. But this was pre-AFL that we know today. This was still during the days where local football ruled the roost. You were loyal to your suburb and team and took on many of the long-reigning grudges, even if you didn't know what they were about. And the Ratcliffs were Norwood Redleg supporters. Les, Kath, David and Joanne were enjoying another traditional family Saturday afternoon at the ground. The smell of spilled beer and steamy meat pies wafting through the grandstands as some 12,000 supporters roared around the ground. They were playing the North Adelaide Roosters on this day at the historic Adelaide Oval. Les had found the family their usual parking spot near the Jolly's boat ramp where the famous Popeye tourist boat docked when it wasn't cruising down the River Torrens. The family had hurried excitedly to the ground and watched the first half of the game. During this time, Joanne had taken shine to a younger four-year-old girl named Kirsty Gordon. Kirsty was attending the game with her grandmother, Rita Huckle. The Ratcliffs had known Rita for years. They even referred to her as Auntie Rita. They were all passionate Norwood supporters. And a family friend had come along as well. His name was Frank and he sat with them. Young Kirsty, a shy girl with blonde shoulder-length hair, blue eyes and freckles, was at the game with her grandmother because her parents, Christine and Greg, were away in the South Australian town of Renmark on a brief holiday, catching up with some of Greg's old teaching friends. They'd taken their two-year-old, Catherine, with them, 
but left Kirsty to enjoy a night or two with her grandmother. When the Gordons decided to extend their stay for an extra night, Kirsty stayed on with her grandmother and came along to the football as a result. The Ratcliffe family had sat down beside Rita and her granddaughter, and 11-year-old Joanne took immediate shine to the four-year-old Kirsty. She took her under her wing for the day to make the youngster feel more comfortable in the big crowd. And as we mentioned before, 12,000 people at this game, that's lots of people around in a condensed area, bustling folk going to and from their seats, to the bar, to the restroom. Interestingly, it was reported there was around 12,000 people on Glenelg Beach the day the Beaumont children disappeared, presumed to be abducted, as we covered in detail in last week's episode. And as we also said last week, it wasn't uncommon for kids to be raised with more of a sense of independence back in this time. But the Beaumont case had rattled the country's cages, that's for sure. People were much more aware of stranger danger, even in these times, just several short years later in the early 70s. Les Ratcliffe was very proud of Joanne's sensibility around these matters. They attended the football regularly, so he'd had the talking to strangers chat with Joanne. She was well aware of the dangers around it, and she knew how to dial triple O from a payphone without money, which sounds basic nowadays in the mobile age, but factoring the times, I think there'd be many 11-year-olds now who couldn't locate anything, let alone the now obsolete payphone without maps on their phone. Joanne had offered to take Kirsty to the toilet during the game. The bathrooms were located adjacent to the Sir Edwin Smith grandstand, where the horde of red leg supporters were situated. She'd taken Kirsty to the bathroom once by half-time, and the pair had gone on another brief trip through the crowd in search of some straws at one point, both times returning safely to their seats. Kirsty grew seemingly more comfortable as the game wore on. Kirsty had just started kindergarten, which had brought her out of her shell a bit more, but she was still a very shy girl by nature. She'd just begun Highland dancing at kinder, and when her parents Christine and Greg would ask her what she'd learned... Kirsty would run into the hallway and do the dance moves where they couldn't see her before returning to the lounge room. So that's a good example of her shyness and I'm sure she would have found comfort in Joanne's friendship. At around 3.45pm that afternoon, which was late in the third quarter of the football game, Kirsty needed to go to the toilet again and Joanne, as she'd done all day, offered to take her. Les, Kath and Rita didn't bat an eyelid at letting the girls go together. Joanne was being mindful of the Ratcliffe family rule Les had instilled No, going to the toilets during the game breaks due to the crowds and potential for kids to become disorientated and lost. They had to go during the quarters when the game was on. Around this time, the two girls were spotted by young 13-year-old Anthony Kilmartin. He and his brother Robert, who was 14, had travelled from their Salisbury home around 30 kilometres north of Adelaide. They'd caught the train in and come to the game to earn some pocket money selling lollies, chips and ice creams. So young Kilmartin passed the girls on their way to the toilet as he ascended the stairs, his lolly tray strapped to him in attempts to grab a few more quick sales from red leg supporters prior to his shift ending. Ken Wolling, the assistant curator at the Adelaide Oval, was fossicking around in the gardener's shed behind the John Creswell stand at a similar time when he heard a pair of young voices outside. He peeked out the shed door and saw Joanne and Kirsty down on their haunches trying to coax a stray kitten out from beneath a parked car. This was consistent with Joanne's noted affection for animals. Walling didn't think much of it, as the Oval was a place of preference for a lot of wildcats and youngsters often played around with them. Here, kitty, kitty, come on, we won't hurt you, 
Joanne and Kirsty beckoned the stray feline. Walling then observed a man approach the girls and say, I'll try and get him out for you. He described the man as wearing a country-style Akubra hat, a grey checkered sports jacket and brown trousers. He was of average height, around 5 foot 8, and had a stooped posture. Walling thought nothing of it at all and closed the shed door and resumed his work. Not long after, Les Radcliffe would be knocking on the assistant curator's door, asking if he'd seen two girls. At about 4pm, Les and Kath Radcliffe looked at each other, thinking the girls should have been back by now. Les, a man of small stature who'd once contemplated becoming a jockey, had a big heart when it came to his kids and felt on edge immediately. This wasn't the norm for Joanne. As we said, she was a responsible girl. Les rushed to the toilets under the Creswell stand, hoping to bump into the girls playing, having just left the bathroom, but they weren't there. He asked a woman nearby to check in the toilet for him. She did and simply shook her head at him upon exiting the bathroom. While Les rushed around downstairs, Kath and Rita were checking the grandstand, the walkways, the boundary line, but they saw no sign of the two girls. At 4.09pm, young Robert Kilmartin, selling lollies with his brother, was sitting on a concrete step under the Creswell stand as the siren sounded, marking the end of the third quarter. This was only a few metres away from the female toilets. While resting for a moment, having been on his feet all day, the elder Kilmartin brother saw Joanne and Kirsty playing nearby with another three kids who were kicking around a soccer ball. Around this time, the wrought iron gates at the southern end of the ground were open to the public for free entry. So there was some crowds pouring in around this area, along with hordes of men flocking to the bar for a quick beer before the final quarter resumed. Through the bustling crowd, Anthony Kilmartin again saw the girls he'd passed earlier. The pair were with a man wearing a country-style Akubra hat pulled down to his eye line, and he had Kirsty under his left arm, carrying her away. Joanne, meanwhile, was in apparent distress and trying to grab hold of the younger girl. The man turned to Joanne and said, You little bitch, go away, bugger off. Kilmartin then saw a pair of reading glasses fall out of the man's jacket onto the ground, and after he retrieved them, he grabbed Joanne's arm and dragged her along towards the gates at the southern end of the oval. Kilmartin thought it was the girl's father, perhaps, and they'd maybe been misbehaving or something along those lines. He described the man in a very similar way to the man Ken Walling had seen outside his gardener's shed with the girls. Meanwhile, Les Radcliffe was darting around the Sir Edwin Smith stand and surrounds in a desperate attempt to spot his daughter and young Kirsty, a nervous sweat on his furrowed brow. It was around this time, shortly into the fourth quarter, that Kath and Les told their son David to wait in their seats for the girls to return while they rushed to the secretary's office and requested an announcement over the PA. We covered how all that went down in the introduction. The man there, Munn, was less than helpful and pointed the distressed parents to the police down by the boundary line. Rita proposed that the girls had left at three-quarter time, thinking the game had ended. Les was adamant this wasn't the case. He knew his daughter well and she knew football games like the back of her hand. Their parental instincts had well and truly kicked in by this point. Les Ratcliffe spent the rest of the football game frantically searching for his daughter and Kirsty. He searched the car park, the back of the stands, the neighbouring tennis courts, the bowling club nearby. Then he returned to the oval and knocked frantically on the door of the maintenance shed at the back of the Creswell stand. A perplexed Ken Walling answered the knocks, the look on his face unimportant to Les Ratcliffe, who just had one question. Two girls are missing. Have you seen the two girls? He then briefly described what they were wearing. Walling had barely gathered his thoughts when he replied, they're not here. 
before Les Ratcliffe took off again in rampant search for his daughter. Walling didn't even have the time to give a further explanation of what he'd seen earlier. Kath Ratcliffe too paced the stands, searched the toilets and other hiding spots. The Ratcliffe's family friend, Frank, had left his seat shortly before the girls disappeared and returned about 30 minutes later. But it was said he didn't help with the search of the girls. We'll talk more about Frank later on, but the timing of his absence and the lack of assistance in what would have been a frantic time to say the least is very odd. Assuming he was indeed a family friend, or at least close enough to attend the game with them, indicating he wasn't just a casual co-supporter of the Red Legs they'd bumped into on occasion. As 5pm closed in and the final siren rang to roaring applause from the crowd, Les and Kath Ratcliffe steamrolled into the secretary's office again and demanded an announcement to be made. This time, the seemingly more responsive Mr Blundell aided the distraught pair and organised for an announcement. Joanne Ratcliffe in Adelaide Oval, come back to your mother and father. By 12 past five, the police had logged the first report of the girl's disappearance when Les rang them from a nearby payphone, and by this time, it was too late. The girls had vanished. The police swooped into action, seemingly more responsive, with the Beaumont case still somewhat fresh in everyone's minds. They set up roadblocks around Adelaide on the chance the abductor was trying to get out of Dodge with the girls. Police searched the streets in vehicles and on foot, and Les Ratcliffe had former employers and ex-work colleagues helping out as well. I read differing reports on what Les did exactly, bakers' vans, royal auto vans and taxis, so whatever the case, Les had his old workmates out there in their cars trawling the streets for the girls as well. And the police knew that early information was critical in this case. They'd missed the early lead in the Beaumont case and they'd even commented publicly that it wasn't worth people calling in a week or a month. If there was a sexual deviant active and responsible for their abduction, they needed to know now. Even the local cinemas helped with displaying messages of the abduction on their screens. Greg Gordon answered the call from Rita Huckle. He shook from head to toe as he heard the words coming down the line. Missing? What do you mean? Greg, Christine and their youngest, Catherine, rushed straight back to the car and were back in Adelaide by around 3am. They went directly to the Adelaide Oval to help with the search. Both sets of desperate parents searched the surrounding areas of the Adelaide Oval through the night, scared out of their wits, thinking about what might have happened to their daughters. Reports of sightings came in, I'd like to say thick and heavy, but they were somewhat sparse when compared with the Beaumont case. Ken Walling, the assistant curator, obviously came forward with what he had seen. The Kilmartin brothers too, particularly Anthony's sightings of the man carrying Kirsty. He relayed that he had seen a man swoop out from behind a pepper tree and scoop the little girl up, before the older one tried to rescue her, hitting out at the man and kicking him in the shins. Police searched into the night and things really turned into a manhunt off the back of the witnesses' descriptions from the young Kilmartin boy and Walling. There had been four sightings in around the 90 minutes after Walling saw the girls, none of them particularly helpful outside of the description of the man. Another man came forward who had spotted the commotion of the man with the young girl under his arm as he was driving past. 
He noted that he saw the man carrying the little girl, fending off the older girl, who we know to be Joanne and Kirsty, obviously. At the time, the man considered intervening, but thought, as many others did, that this was the girl's father and he didn't want to stick his nose into someone else's business. Police searched through the wet local parklands and woke homeless people, questioning them intently on anything they might have seen. The following day, Greenkeeper Harry Roberts from the adjacent Adelaide Bowls Club came forward, saying that he'd seen a man matching the description of the abductor lurking around the men's toilet block at the Oval around 11, 11.30am on the Saturday of the game. After a harrowing night for the parents, police bust in a load of cadets to help with searching the grassed areas near the River Torrens banks. The police aqualung squad was assembled and set into action to search the murky waters of the vast river. They found plenty of litter, but no sign of the girls. Les Radcliffe returned to the Oval to run over the events of the day prior with the police, hoping a retracing of the girls' steps might aid detectives in the search. But it was all too much for Les. The thought of his beautiful Joanne being taken, he fell to his knees and broke down in the arms of a detective named Lehman, and he had to be carried away and nursed back to health. Later into the Sunday, a couple more reports of sightings came forward. The first, a passing motorist spotted a blue Holden sedan with Victorian number plates on Port Road around 5am on that Sunday morning. In the front was a young girl and in the back a smaller, seemingly younger girl. Another report from a second tipster was even more recent. This person saw two girls walking west along Port Road, only two kilometres from the Adelaide Oval, around 5.30pm the night before. They commented that the man and the older girl appeared to be fighting. The police investigated some other angles the usual sexual deviants located in the surrounding areas, and reports of suspicious people at the ground on the day. One was a transvestite who was hanging around the toilet blocks. Turned out to be a guy completing a dare at the behest of some footy mates. Mannequins were displayed in Adelaide's Rundle Mall, depicting what the two girls were wearing when they had been abducted. Joanne, a white blouse, black tank top, black jeans, white shoes and white socks. Kirsty white pleated skirt, purple jumper, white pantyhose and brown lace-up shoes. Kirsty also had some distinguishing marks and scars, a small scar above the bridge of her nose and birthmarks at the base of her spine and hairline. A dismal reward sum, as had been issued with the Beaumont case of $5,000, was originally offered for information leading to the perpetrator. Local construction industry workers chipped in their own sum to almost double this reward amount. A contradictory report came in of the girls being seen with a man who had on a blue shirt and this guy had a moustache and sideburns, so didn't match the abductor at the Oval's description. This report came forward about two weeks after the abduction. Police were sceptical of it because of the description. The person who made the report, though, got the description of the girls right, the date and the timing also lined up, but their clothing had also been circulated this time, so the police didn't weigh it very heavily. And these latter sightings of the girls were all occurring around the suburb of the Barton. So this became an area the police would frequently door knock for leads, and the Ratcliffe and Gordon families too canvassed the area for clues on their daughter's whereabouts. The Barton very much became like Summerton Park area near Glenelg in this sense. The Ratcliffe and Gordon families were relentlessly pursued by the media, as we saw similarly in the Beaumont case last week. The fragile parents spoke with reporters openly about their children and pled for anyone in the public who had any information to come forward. 
Les Radcliffe appeared on a television special broadcast, again appealing to the public, but also directly to the abductor, telling him to drop them off on a street corner. He spoke directly to his daughter, Joanne, too, telling her that her first duty was to protect the little girl, Kirsty, which from reports to date sounds exactly like what she did. Jim and Nancy Beaumont watched this broadcast from their newly built unit on the Glenelg waterfront. They'd stayed at the family home for three years after their children's disappearance and presumed abduction in 1966. But in the end, the memories were just too painful. They watched Les Ratcliffe's pleas, probably only two of a handful of people in the country at the time who knew what the Ratcliffe's and Gordons were going through. At the end of the broadcast, police held up an identikit photo of the suspect, and we'll post this for you all to see. Initial thoughts were it looked a lot like the Beaumont sketch, the main similarity being the thin face. This man had a brimmed hat on though, and the sketch was a little better, more defined than the Beaumont one, although still only marginally helpful by today's standards. The following day, the Gordon family received a presumed hoax phone call from someone claiming to have Kirsty, and they demanded $25,000. When the caller wouldn't provide proof that they had Kirsty or that she was still alive, they ended the call and never rang back leading police to believe that it was a con job. But you can imagine, this slither of hope the Gordons had at that moment would have been crushed instantly after this, which is just terrible to think about. The police used a new investigation method with this case, and it wasn't like the advent of DNA technology or CCTV. This was a Scotland Yard-approved system known as the Super Sleuth. For all intents and purposes, this was a card indexing system that prioritised inquiries and potential leads, one, two, and three by level of urgency. With 3,368 calls from the public in the first two weeks, the media were all over this new system as being a way of tracking leads and keeping the abduction trail hot. Super Sleuth was a complex cross-referencing system that might well appear elementary nowadays, but back then it had been brought to Australia and the South Australian police actually just before the Ratcliffe-Gordon abduction when an Adelaide University professor named George Duncan had been thrown into the River Torrens by a group of what you can only describe as gay bashers. Being 1972 at the time, homosexuality was illegal and Duncan was openly gay. He and his friend Roger James were walking along the banks of the river when they were attacked. Duncan succumbed to the strong flowing river immediately and it didn't help that he only had one lung. James survived and he was rescued by a passing motorist. This motorist and Good Samaritan's name was Bevan Spencer Von Einem. And we'll put a pin in that story as it won't be the last time we discuss it this season. But this was the case that Super Sleuth was originally brought into Australia for. Police cadets worked around the clock categorising leads before things were handed over to more experienced detectives to sift through and refine. But well intended as the investigation was, it inevitably went cold. Leads dried up for the police as the weeks turned into months. In 1978, we'd see an old but familiar name creep into the investigation, Croizet, the Dutch parapsychologist we spoke of last week in the Beaumont case. If we recall, Gerard Croizet had visited Australia in 1966 to help the search for the three missing children where he eventually settled on the location of a warehouse in Paringa Park as the children's final resting place. No trace of the Beaumont children was ever found at that location. However, it would be Croizet's son, Gerard Croizet Jr., who was a clairvoyant himself, oddly enough, 
who would visit Australia to weigh in on the now stagnant investigation. But not before his ageing and apparently ill old man had his input from the Netherlands. Croizet Sr. dropped the clues, a farm, a red bus and a high chimney, prior to his son's arrival. The 10 Network paid for Croizet Jr. to come out to Australia in hopes of making a documentary about his search for Joanne and Kirsty. A questionable motive, particularly nowadays, but maybe not so much at the time, with the pair of frail parents clinging to hopes that their daughters might still be alive, some years later now with a cold investigative trail. He gave a press conference, Scroizet, at the Adelaide Oval, where he proceeded to parade around, follow the trail, journalists following him as he did. He said the man had met the girls and lured them through the eastern gates towards the river to play with ducks. So immediately, that's conflicting with reports from the time. He provided a fairly vague description of the abductor as he went along before he pointed to a number of old council glass houses on War Memorial Drive where he proclaimed that Kirsty had been strangled there. He said her killer had wrapped her in Hessian after this and dumped her body at the Wingfield tip. He then proceeded to give a pantomime of how Joanne met her fate, becoming quite animated as he made striking actions. In the end, like his father before him, Croizet Jr.'s trip did nothing but confuse and distract the families and the police who were still investigating the case. In 1979, We'd see an interesting turn of events in the case with a shred of comfort for the families, albeit not the ultimate closure they were hoping for. Les Radcliffe saw a visiting British spiritualist this year, a 60-year-old lady named Doris Stokes. She was in Adelaide on a world tour, apparently known as the Housewives Clairvoyant. Back in the UK, she was somewhat of a celebrity. Stokes relayed quite a lot of history to Les before she apparently experienced a great deal of Joanne's emotions through herself, at one point even saying to Les, Daddy, you're too uptight, you can't help me. Les was visibly upset at this and believed his daughter was indeed speaking through Stokes to him. Stokes claimed Joanne was hesitating to go back to Les or to try and rescue Kirsty when it all happened and also that Joanne had broken free from her abductor at one point and hidden a shed in the car park. This shed was apparently linked with tar, and this connected with the sheds on Memorial Drive tennis courts, which had been relocated to the car park, but had previously been sealed in tar at their foundations. Stokes told Les a name that she believed was that of the abductor. It was almost exactly the same name that another psychic had given Les but she would only give it on the condition that Les would take no action and to leave it in the hands of police. She then led Les to a secret location in Adelaide's north where she alleged the children's bodies were buried. It's unclear if police took any of Stokes's claims seriously or looked into them or if she even passed the information on. But it seemingly gave Les Radcliffe some semblance of closure, what Stokes told him. He and Kath had spent pretty much every last penny they had on trying to find Joanne. I'm sure the Gordon family would too have exhausted every resource at their disposal, financial or otherwise. In 1979, there'd also be an inquiry into the disappearance by coroner Kevin O'Hearn. He reviewed all the evidence and police reports related to the events on August 25th, 1973. O'Hearn's findings, while not digging up anything new or sparking any fresh leads did come down pretty hard on the South Australian Cricket Association, citing the poor response from Munn. Ahern said the announcement should have been made when Cats Ratcliffe first asked for it. It might have jolted people nearby to look out for something or to intervene. 
Hearn stated, at the very least, the association should have alerted the police on the first report, not simply fobbed off the hysterical parents. So there was some sense of, I'm not sure what you call it, not closure, but fairness and maybe peace of mind that came from 1979, at least for Les, with the findings and the clairvoyant story. In 1980, Les Radcliffe, who'd been diagnosed with cancer by this time, issued an open letter to the public. It read, As a parent, I could not wish for anyone to live through what I have had to live through. I do not want sympathy. My family does not want sympathy. The illness has caught me just when I was beginning to accept Joanne was gone forever. Despite it all, I am happy now. Sadly, Les Radcliffe passed away in January 1981, eight years after that harrowing day at the Adelaide Oval. One can only hope he was reunited with his smiling daughter in whatever version of an afterlife might exist. And it was around the time of Les's passing that another sighting would come about. And this report really leads us into the suspect discussion. Sue Laurie was only 14 in 1973, but she didn't make the report until seven years later in 1980. These are her words in the Sunday Mail. Here she describes the circumstances surrounding what she saw and the delay in reporting it. I looked across the river and saw a very young girl being carried by a man who I thought was her grandfather. She was crying and the older girl, I think she was a few years younger than me, was running after him. She was thumping him and punching him and crying out at him. I saw all that for about 60 seconds. It was after I married I kept on and on at my husband about my memories. My husband said, go and do something about it. I went to the chief investigator in about 1979-1980 and made a full statement. I believe on the day of the abduction, the police were looking in the opposite direction to where we were walking. So this report highlighted that even off the back of the Beaumont case, some seven years before the girl's abduction, people were still apprehensive to come forward and talk about these things. Laurie added that she had been at the zoo that day with her father, but didn't think he'd seen what she had. She was sure of many things, including the time, because her dad remarked on a siren sounding, indicating the beginning or ending of the third quarter. And she finished stating that Joanne's parents should take heart that she did everything she could to protect her little friend. She went on to describe the man, wide-brimmed hat with a low, flat crown, and this was said to be unusual in Adelaide at the time. In more recent times, they'd become fashionable, but in 1973, this style of hat was described as very Queensland country. She also caught a good look at the man's face. But it wouldn't be until 1998, nearly 20 years later, that Sue Laurie's report would take on a whole new level of meaning. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
When a television report aired discussing the arrest of a man alleged to have committed a double murder of two sisters in northern Queensland on August 26, 1970, Sue Laurie recognised the man in question. His name was Arthur Stanley Brown. At first, Laurie couldn't place where she knew him from exactly, but the day following the news report, she was talking with a friend in Adelaide, and before the friend had even mentioned the rumours surfacing that Arthur Brown was linked to the Adelaide Oval abduction, Sue Laurie exclaimed, my God, that's him. She was adamant Brown was the man she had seen some 25 years earlier fending off Joanne Ratcliffe with Kirsty Gordon under his arm. We spoke briefly about Brown last week as a suspect in the Beaumont children abduction, His connection to that crime really is a result of his connection with the Adelaide Oval abduction. He is considered a contemporary prime suspect in this case and potentially the Beaumonts if you believe the cases are connected. Brown's arrest and the pending trial against him was Australia-wide news in 1998. He was eventually deemed unfit to stand trial for the murders of Judith and Susan McKay due to him being too senile. He was in his 80s by this time and suffering from Alzheimer's disease. He died in 2002, an innocent man. We're going to discuss Arthur Stanley Brown in more detail next week. In a similar way to Derek Percy, there'd be many crimes potentially connected to this monster. But unlike Percy, he managed to live his entire life until the last few years, a free man, out of police crosshairs and public scrutiny. Brown looked a lot like the police identicate photo of the Adelaide Oval suspect, He had that whole thin face and sunken eyes thing going on, and he wore wide-brimmed hats. And being from Queensland, the description of the Queensland-style country hat or a Kubra was compelling when factoring his potential involvement. But after this report, police had the task of trying to make a connection between Brown, a guy from northern Queensland, with Adelaide. The state police forces worked together and sent their information on Brown and the Adelaide abduction to Canberra's Bureau of Criminal Intelligence, specifically their Violent Crime Linkages Assessment Unit. They had the extremely difficult task of piecing together the past 30 years of Arthur Brown's life, and this proved difficult. Brown had very scant working records, none that could be located, and there was some suggestion that buildings containing these records may have been affected by the 1974 floods in Brisbane. It was also stated Brown had unrestricted access to government buildings in his working career and could have removed his own working records. So they couldn't tell when or where he'd worked or holidayed. The only direct connection placing Brown in Adelaide came from someone who knew the man. A lady named Christine Millier, who was a relative of Brown's, came forward recalling a conversation she'd had with him in which he mentioned having seen Adelaide's Festival Theatre during construction, when it was almost finished. The first performances at the theatre took place in June 1973, only a couple of months before the Oval abduction in August. The theatre looks out across the river to the Adelaide Oval. So that's Arthur Brown's connection to this case, and he's subsequently linked to the Beaumont case through this and the sketch. Another suspect, and another name will grow increasingly familiar with this season, is Bevan Spencer Von Einem. We also spoke about him as a popular suspect in the Beaumont case. He linked more directly in the sense that he was an Adelaide resident and was convicted of the murder of Richard Calvin in 1983. He was alleged to be a part of the notorious and mysterious family that potentially operated a pedophilic torture and murdering in Adelaide in the late 70s, early 80s. Once again, we'll talk more about Von Einem and those details in another episode, 
But I found an interesting point in researching this case that links one item in a different way to the usual MO and Beaumont crossover. On the 40th anniversary of Joanne and Kirsty's abduction in 2013, it was revealed that the Ratcliffe's family friend named Frank, who attended the football game on that day, had sold his house in the late 70s to none other than Bevan Spencer von Einem's mother, Thora. Now, it's a small world. The question is, is it that small? It was unclear if the police had ever caught up with and questioned Frank, and the Ratcliffe family weren't implicating him directly, just pointing out that no stone should be left unturned. The mysterious Frank knew the girl's movements and routine at the game that day, and it was said he'd been absent for 30 minutes just before the girls disappeared and to have not participated in the search for them. Frank was mentioned once in the 1979 inquest, but as a mere witness to confirm events. Harry Phipps, the Saturn man, has become a recent crossover suspect since the mid-2000s after his name was revealed by Channel 7 off the back of the Alan Whitaker and Stuart Mullins book on the Beaumont children's disappearance. We went into plenty of detail on Phipps last week, so listen to that episode for information. We won't rehash it now. Suffice to say, many of those aspects, his tendencies, allegations against him and his location, make him a viable crossover person of interest in this case. As we also mentioned last week, Derek Percy is occasionally mentioned as a suspect in the Adelaide Oval abduction as well due to the crossover of so many suspects. But he's not a person of interest in this case. In 1973, Percy was already detained at the governor's pleasure, having been found not guilty and criminally insane at trial for the murder of Yvonne Tui. We covered Percy in detail on episode 14 of this season. Now we come to the final suspect in this case, and things take a pretty bleak and dark turn at this point, so fair warning. It's all been fairly dark to this point, but in researching this last person of interest, Sean, you saw some pretty disturbing things open up as a possibility. I did indeed. In 2007, a guy named Mark Trevor Marshall, who was a convicted pedophile, disclosed at the Mulligan Inquiry into Children in State Care that he believed his grandfather, Stanley Arthur Hart, was a suspect in the abduction and murder of two girls from the Adelaide Oval in 1973. Marshall wrote a confession to this tune, stating that his popper Stan had taken a coat and hat from the house to wear to the footy that day. Marshall also included hand-drawn maps of two areas that were sites of interest in the murder of Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon. These locations were the Pekina Dam near Oruru and a farmhouse at Yatana, where Hart resided. So his grandson really dropped him in it here. By this time, 2007, Stanley Hart had been dead going on eight years. He died in 1999 while living in Queensland, but he was buried back in Yatna, where he'd spent most of his life. Stanley Hart was an army clerk in his younger days and then became a butcher. It was said that he was assisted in a move from Adelaide to Yatna in order to curb his pedophilic tendencies and activities, which became known to his family in the early 1980s. As I understand, Hart had the Yatna property prior to 1973. However, at the time of the oval abduction, he was listed as residing in an address in Parkside, a suburb south of Adelaide. Hart was also linked to a property in Prospect, north of Adelaide, which was said to be his childhood home. It turned out that he had unrestricted and unmonitored access to this prospect property from March 1973, and this place had a large underground bunker out the back. 
The bunker was an air raid shelter with two entrances and big enough to fit about four adults. It was filled in sometime before 1975, after the girl's abduction. It was confirmed by surviving members of Hart's family that he was an avid North Adelaide Roosters football club fan who rarely missed a match, but there were conflicting reports within the family if he actually attended the game on the 25th of August, 73. Stanley Hart, like Arthur Brown, was a dead ringer for the police sketch of the suspect too. He had that thin face and in the pictures we saw, he had on a wide-brimmed hat too. So obviously these new revelations were the first big moves in the case in a long time, really. There'd been no major developments through the 80s and 90s until Arthur Brown's arrest. And then 10 years later, Stanley Hart is thrown into the mix. The evidence, albeit from Marshall, a convicted pedophile, was compelling enough for police to investigate. There'd be some private investigators on the trail now too, although it was unclear to me who'd hired them, if anyone, or if these inquiries were undertaken of their own accord. However it occurred, in late 2008 and early 2009, investigators and police searched the Yatana farmhouse of Hearts and the Pekina Dam and removed a number of items... Investigators located two barrels hidden in a sealed tunnel of the Pekina Dam wall where Marshall suggested the bodies of the girls were disposed of. South Australia police conducted forensic testing on the contents, which was said to be a stinking red honeycomb-looking substance. A weak trace of blood was discovered but later confirmed to be of no significance. The Prospect property was also searched along with the Yatana property and a butcher's apron and pants of hearts were removed and sent away for testing around this time too. Private investigators began to piece together a possible trail of where the abductor might have gone after leaving the Oval with the girls. The theory was he'd potentially taken them out of the Parklands area on a red hen train from the North Adelaide station. And this coincides with the last confirmed sightings of the girls with their abductor near Port Road around 5pm on the day of their abduction. This was just a stone's throw away from the train station. And things didn't stop there with the probe into Stanley Hart. Although nothing definitively linking him had arisen yet, police and investigators kept on the case and returned to the Yatana property to search for clues. And search they did. We'll post some pictures of this, but they really pumped some resources into the excavation and police descended down a pair of wells or mine shafts. It was quite an operation. They sifted through piles of dirt as well by hand. So it's suggesting a pretty strong feeling here that they might find something. And this is despite initial comments from police that Marshall's claims were fantasy off the back of the failed results from the barrels back in 2009. But investigators didn't rest on that. Around 2014, the contents of the barrels were again sent off for retesting, but once again, it was said that nothing of note was located in the subject material of the acidic substance. It's said that South Australian police remain active and the investigation is open and ongoing. Now we take a bit of a dark turn, and I wanted to leave this until the end because it's information that I came across when diving just that little bit deeper into the case. I'm going to start by saying I wanted more information on these barrels and how they were discovered, but also in looking at the images of the police searchers at Hart's property at Yatana, there's one in particular where the officer is sifting by hand through some dirt, spreading it across this large sort of framed sieve, if you will, and off to the side in this picture there appears to be a small white children's shoe. There's no mention of it in the caption or of police finding anything in their investigations out at Yatana, 
But these two points got me thinking and digging that little bit deeper. Turns out these private investigators that originally found the barrels might have conducted their own little investigation out at Yatana and surrounds, and some of the information posted online about this is quite disturbing. We're just going to cover off some of the main points because this is the internet and these are someone else's claims of what they and their colleagues observed. From a news snippet I saw, I understand one of these investigators is named Robert Cameron, but I believe there were a few others involved. It was their second trip to Pikina Dam that uncovered the barrels in a tunnel under the reservoir and the entrance was covered with a calcite rock formation. They couldn't get through it to begin with, but drove out a few weeks later with a carload of them wielding sledgehammers, pickaxes and pumps, and they cracked through it and found the aforementioned barrels with the substances we described before. But before this trip to the dam, they made one to Yatana, to the property of Stanley Hart. Here they discovered about 20 single bed mattresses, toys everywhere, notes and scribblings on the walls, a medical book with notes on how to drug people into a hypnotic state, two old hats that were strikingly similar to that of the suspect sketch. One was a grey Stetson brand, another was a brown fur type hat, and they apparently located a lot of children's personal items, clothing and such. The investigators also visited a local pub in Yatana, and they claimed to have found all kinds of crazy stuff in there, alluding to pedophilic activities in the area. Child pornography, newspaper articles and an ice cream van with a mattress in the back. These investigators filmed all of this, and some of the footage from Hart's house and the Pekina Dam, including the barrels and its contents, it's actually online, I've viewed it. It's disturbing, to say the least, and I wouldn't recommend anyone try and find it. The investigators went further again, outlining their theory that Yatna was somewhat of a pedophilic playground in the 70s, servicing many of Adelaide's elite. They contended these elitist pedophiles, who came from all sorts of backgrounds, including police and doctors, were flown into the area via a small crop-dusting airport about five kilometres from the pub, where they'd then attend and allegedly commit acts against children. In one of the videos, there's a picture of a bearded man who isn't named, but the captions assert that this guy contacted police back in 1973, a few times, when he spotted two girls matching Joanne and Kirsty's descriptions holed up at a boarding house on the night of their disappearance. So I dug a bit deeper on that and found an article online by Craig Cook from the uh, Sunday Mail, August the 31st, 2013. It reads, Prospect man Robert McMahon, 73, claims he saw the girls at a Vine Street boarding house on the day they were abducted. He said the girls were accompanied by a man known as Scotty, with whom he shared the boarding house. Mr McMahon said he was so disturbed by the incident, he drew pictures that night of what he claims he saw and wrote a letter detailing what happened at the property on this date. Mr McMahon claims that late in the afternoon he was sitting in his room watching a VFA football match on the TV when he heard a racket out the back of the house. I went to check and there was one of the boarders coming in and Scotty had two children with him, he said. He had the little one under his right arm and the other one was ahead of him. He walked them around in a circle in front of us, four or five men laughing and joking. He said the kids were his grandchildren, but when the older one went to speak, he told her to shut up and not to say anything. Mr McMahon, who was 33 at the time of the girl's disappearance, went to the kitchen area of the boarding house where he said he watched the man drag the small girl to the back of his van that was parked in a laneway. 
He threw the little one in roughly and motioned to the bigger one to jump in, he said. He slammed the back door and then locked it. When I saw the photos, I knew for sure it was those girls that I'd seen, he said. But the police said they had hundreds of sightings and would get back to me. He claimed they never did. He said he rang police a week later and then again around the first anniversary of the abductions with the same result. He said he didn't pursue it further out of frustration. Mr McMahon said Scotty, he never knew his real name, did not return to the boarding house and he never saw him again. He described Scotty as being in his early 40s with a broad Scottish accent. He said he was about 165 centimetres tall, had a grey receding hair and limped on his right side, so that's in line with the stoop the abductor displayed. Mr McMahon said he was fully aware of the pain and distress his story could cause if he was lying. I will tell the same story on my deathbed and if I ever get to face my God, he said. I have a bit of guilt that I didn't try even harder at the time to get it out, but we all have things we have to live with and I did try. So look, I'm not sure what to make of all that. Like I said, it's a dark turn at the end there, but I think it'd be a disservice not to report on what's been put out there in in full. We'll leave it up to you all to make uh, what you will of that. Needless to say, the Ratcliffe and Gordon families have had to cope with the loss of two beautiful young bright girls. That loss would have had a profound effect on them all over the years and we can only hope that closure is found one day for all of their sakes. They've lived on, never giving up, but also had to move on in many ways. I've read some interviews of the Gordons who are still trying to keep their beautiful little girl's case in the public's mind in modern times. The Ratcliffe's had another daughter, Susie, in the mid-70s before Les passed. She's been active in recent years pushing for answers. Susie runs a missing persons advocacy group called Leave a Light On and it's doing a lot for this case and other missing children's cases. She's pushing for retesting in many cases with the advanced DNA capabilities we have now. There's said to be around 40 to 50 long-term missing children cases, which are probably unsolved deaths in reality, in South Australia alone, and around 500 sets of unidentified remains in Australia. So testing could certainly go a long way to getting closure for families who've been dealing with considerable anguish for a long time. And as time goes on in this case and others, it becomes less likely that the perpetrator will ever be known for sure, and less likely again that if they were identified that they'd still be alive. From us here at True Blue, I think it's fair to say that both of our thoughts are with the Ratcliffe and Gordon families and our hearts with Joanne and Kirsty. Definitely. And I have to say, I don't love unsolved crimes. I don't love any crime, but I find these particularly difficult. I find it so hopeless and nonsensical because it's a bad thing without the ability to understand why or make sense of it. I don't know what else I can say differently to what I said about the Beaumont case as well last week. The thought of two young girls going missing and never being found is just heart-wrenching. And the sightings within the first 90 minutes and the assumption that even though the girls were struggling, it was most likely a family dispute, so no one stepped in is just so sad knowing now what we know. I'm not sure I would have done any different, but imagine if someone had stepped in or stood up and said something. And I think you're going to talk a bit more about the suspect, Sean, and I know I agree with you, so I won't recap that. And this, again, has been such a long period of not knowing, over 45 years. When I was researching and reading articles for this case, I read that Joanne's mother died in March this year, not knowing what happened to her daughter. It's so sad. 
I hope she was able to find some peace. And I still have to hope that one day they do connect the dots and know for sure what happened to these poor girls. This one, like last week, really cut deep. Having two young girls myself, it was a very upsetting case to research and write about. Much less out there about this case, as opposed to the other cases we've covered this season, where you almost have to pare back the information. I was able to dig a bit deeper on this one and find some interesting details. And the big question, are the cases linked? It's possible if you consider the potential ring that may have been operating around that time, might explain different sightings and descriptions of people in both cases. The Yatana theory set out by private investigators uh, is interesting and deeply disturbing. I don't think you can rule it out. I find Phipps and Hart as the most compelling individual suspects in the Beaumont disappearance and the Ratcliffe-Gordon abduction, respectively, from the published information we have anyway. But in some ways, it's easier on the human mind to think of one person as the perpetrator, as an outlier to the norm. I think a larger, sicker agenda is more disturbing to contemplate. But I can't shake the details, or lack thereof, really, around Frank, the Ratcliffe family friend, the connection with Von Einem there, innocent as it could possibly be. Just knowing him and the crime he committed and the many more that the family were alleged to have committed, you know, it does circle things back around to more than one person being involved. Perhaps not in the abduction itself, but what transpired thereafter. And then we have Scotty. That sounds like another lead that was potentially missed. So if there's a connection between the cases, in my view, it's possibly in the broader sense of the end result, where the kids were taken and what was done to them not necessarily the individual abductor in each instance. That's my two cents. Thank you. So that's that case. Um, We're moving on to happy thoughts. It's some weather chat to start. So it's cold. It's dark days. You know, it's not getting light until 7.30. It's not getting, it's getting dark at 5pm. Sean's really got the sad. Yeah, that's contributing (laughs) to my mood. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What's your happy thought today? Well, yeah, (laughs) I haven't had a particularly happy week, I'm sorry to say, but... My happy thought is my oldest daughter and I have been, uh, have been, we've been doing a lot of reading recently. She's loving her reading, as do I, Chloe, as you yep. know. So that's a fairly simple but happy thought. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so mine is that I went to a trivia night with my in-laws on the weekend. Um, my husband didn't come because he really doesn't like trivia for some unknown reason. So I went um, by myself and my in-laws went as Britney Spears and Slash. (laughs) That alone was worth (laughs) the night. Um, My father-in-law won a prize for best dressed and he was all in massive black wig, hat, glasses, and he wore them all night. So the highlight of my happy thought is watching him hold up his hair out of his face so he could lean over and whisper answers to the person taking them down next to him. It was so funny. <laughs> Just the memory of that will be my net one for the next three weeks. <laughs> Very good. That's hilarious. Um, and if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can also join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Podcast, or find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $2 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much more to come. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find us as well. Thank you to everyone who reviewed us this week. 
So it's probably no secret now that the final leg of this season we'll be spending in South Australia to talk about this dark time in the state's history. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you all next week on True Blue, True Crime. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.